Welcome to Misty 101. We hope that you enjoy this episode. Americans are heavier than ever, but not for the reasons you think. In the 1960s and 1970s, people smoked, drank a lot of cocktails, and ate some really dodgy fat-filled foods averaging 2,600 calories per day. But almost no one was obese. Today, 65% of adults and 15% of children and adolescents are critically overweight, despite consuming roughly 400 calories fewer per day in a culture awash in health food and a gym on every corner. Obesity-related health disorders cost up to $190 billion a year in the U.S., and cause up to 2.8 million deaths, and yet there seems to be no downward trend in our future and we are right to ask why. How has it come to this? A staggering number of essays, research studies, and OPDS flood media platforms daily addressing the topic, and most of them fault things like fast food consumption, lack of exercise, and a general absence of willpower. We eat out too much, our portions are too big, our beverages are too sugary, reports Vox. Greg Christa, in his book Fatland, puts it down to physiological mechanism, Americans eat more calories than they burn. Men's Health magazine instead puts the emphasis on the eater, the real enemy is within. We must re-engineer our homes and routines so we resist temptation. The article goes on to explain, never mind the adjacent advert promising the diet pills that actually work. Hum, the claims that we are eating more food, and fattier more sugar-laced food, isn't without grounds. Portion sizes have been increasing for decades, and by 2011, NPR reported that the average American ate a literal ton of food in a year. That's 2,000 pounds. By the way, the equivalent of a baby humpback whale, or a 1979 Volkswagen Beetle. Social scientists have blamed the increase on restaurant eating where the appearance of quantity might outweigh quality, or something called completion compulsion or the feeling that we must eat everything in a particular unit of food, even if that unit is an entire pizza. But portion size is not the whole story, not when you compare caloric intake from then and now. We may be eating more, but not so much more that it alone explains the explosion of weight gain. Lack of exercise seems like the next most sensible culprit. Surely our more sedentary lives, especially with pandemic lockdowns and the use of screen time, not just for work but also for play, means we don't burn enough calories. Again, there is merit to this suggestion. The mechanics that Krista talks about aren't imaginary. But studies from around the US show that low-wage workers in manual labor, non-sedentary jobs have some of the highest rates of obesity, including agriculture which also means long hours and intense physical effort. Some 60 different studies suggest that exercise, though very good for you overall, might not be especially related to weight loss, but if it isn't calorie intake, or, not exactly, and it isn't lack of exercise, or, not exactly, then what is it? A quick sweep through social media and the peanut gallery of comments almost always turns into a fat-shaming party. You are to blame, they say, a reworking of the enemy within and media follows up in their own subtle, and not so subtle, ways. At BBC, a headline reads fat people earn less and have a harder time finding work.
There is no mention of the manual labor jobs and swing shifts and cost of living stress that might have helped make you fat, only blame for being so. The real antagonist in this fight against fat isn't your willpower. It's far more insidious than that. The industry wants you this way. It has designed targeted ads to make sure you get the message, and designed foodstuffs that put many more calories in a smaller containers, in the US especially. The food industry has added sugar to everything they could, and corn to everything else. Factory farming explains a lot about where we've ended up. Jack Peretti, in the film The Men Who Made Us Fat, describes the impossible trap of food companies that invested millions into breaking down our defenses and tricking our hunter-gatherer, winter is hard instincts to override appetite control. Guardian journalist George Munbiot piggybacks on Peretti's argument suggesting that paid-for science intentionally misleads us about nutrition. He compares it to the tobacco companies paying doctors to recommend their brands. I know it's hard to absorb. We've been so used to assuming exercise and diet are the only ways to achieve weight loss. But the diet industry itself has a share in the blame, too. In her 2016 book, Neuroscientist Sandra Armod talks about how and why diets actually can make you gain weight and otherwise leave you less healthy than before. One of her first important points is that everybody has an ideal weight, and it might not be the one you imagine for yourself. Second, and critical to her argument, is that dieting is stressful. Stress makes you sick, it also makes you gain weight. In fact, stress hormones go straight to your gut collecting in abdominal fat cells. What else stresses us out? How about everything? We live in a highly connected world, with highly connected lives. Some of that is great news, and means new community. But it also means a steady stream of bad news, crises, and doom scrolling, not to mention the image-oriented stress of most social media platforms. We are always facing a reflection of ourselves in one sense or another. I hate to see myself on Zoom. And of course, the food industry has a hand in our stress as well. How many of us feel paralyzed in grocery aisles between trying to make healthy choices and trying to come up with a reasonable meal on a budget, that our people, if we have them, might actually eat? Reading Labels Labels designed by that same industry trying to break down your resistance, is not pleasure reading, and standing in the frozen food aisle for 15 minutes hardly counts as me time. To add insult to injury, chronic stress actually pumps up the number of fat cells you can generate. You don't just gain, you gain at a faster rate. In the words of Mark Hyman, MD of the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine, one third of our economy thrives on making people sick and fat. That's the bad news. We are locked into a system that really does make it nearly impossible to escape weight gain. But there is better news, and it's this, you are not to blame. That doesn't mean we should give up and it doesn't mean we are powerless. It does mean we can stop thrashing ourselves as if we, and 70 million other folks, got into this mess on our own. There are solutions very biggest solution has to do with public policy and health advocacy, and it would mean big changes in the way our government and economy work. Factory farms, which produce cheap meat that is also a whole lot fattier would need to be stopped or reined in. 
That means a return to smaller farming practice, but also higher prices. More regulation of foods and more transparent nutrition labels would mean healthier, safer products, but it would also mean a big palate change for many Americans, and of course, losses for big food corporations. None of that can be done on the individual level. Instead, as Munbiot puts it, willpower needs to be exercised, by governments and personal responsibility, on the part of policymakers. It's not a small change, we need a food paradigm shift to fix what's really broken. Knowing that so much is against us, what can we do on our own? I've read quite a lot about mindful eating, living for joy, and getting exercise by doing something you like, from nature walks to volleyball to swimming not by forcing yourself into an activity you hate. I also think it's about learning to love your body for what it does, what it gives you, and not what it looks like. None of us are very good at this, so perhaps we can start by loving someone else for the same reasons. Let's encourage each other to live lives so we feel better, not so that we arrive at an ideal of beauty that wasn't even ours, and that will inevitably change anyway. Women don't want to be treated as sex objects, why do they dress provocatively? You play with fire, you get burned. Recently published an article about Emily Ratajkowski accusing Robin Thicke of sexually assaulting her while filming the music video for Blurred Lines. Expected, some men in the comments wrote that given Emily's sex-based persona and her many pictures and videos in various states of undress no one should be surprised this happened. Some comments even went as far as to suggest that women who sexualize themselves and use their sexuality for profit and gain should also be held personally responsible for the consequences of their choices. Because if you play with fire, you get burned right. Can you ever blame women for being assaulted, even if they wear little to no clothing? Can we really judge women who choose to use their sexuality as a method of validation and income in society that routinely tells us our worth equates with our bodies? For a long time, our bodies were not our own. Even though the female body wasn't always as hypersexualized and objectified as it is today, it was a topic of continual scrutiny for many centuries. Medieval Europe, religious figures saw the female body as dangerous and a potential stumbling block to men's salvation. So women had to cover their entire bodies, including hair, to not corrupt male souls. At the beginning of the Renaissance, European men decided it's time to see some boobs. Impossibly tiny waists. Because why not, right? And squeezing corsets and low-cut dresses that exposed breasts became all the rage. The French court even enforced a ban on thick waists that lasted over three centuries. During Victorian times, men once again concluded that women ought to cover their whole bodies in public. It was no longer appropriate for women to flaunt their bosoms or other body parts, particularly bare legs. Diagrams were released to clarify what length of the skirt was suitable for what age. Societal morality changes over time. Non-Western cultures never stigmatized female hair, breasts, legs, or waists. Some did to even a greater extent at times. The above are just a few out of many examples of how changing societal attitudes dictated what women could and couldn't wear and which parts of their bodies were sexualized.
one thing that remains constant across various periods and patriarchal societies is the assumption that the female body exists, first and foremost, for male sexual and viewing pleasure, and so it must be controlled accordingly. Assumption, in turn, stems from the fact that women themselves were considered to be men's property, passed from their fathers to husbands like a prize cow. Let's not forget that men had the legal right to use women's bodies for sexual and reproductive purposes as they pleased pretty much up until the late 20th century, when, thanks to the efforts of the feminist movement, marital rape became illegal. Women's bodily autonomy finally started to be treated seriously. Everywhere and by everyone, but it was a start. What if we're working the rigged system to our benefit? Women's bodies are practically everywhere. Are on display in billboards, movie posters, magazines, and music videos. Are used to sell everything from chocolate to cars and are often dismembered into parts, breasts, legs, butts. At times a woman's body morphs into the product, becoming the bottle of beer or the shoe. It is portrayed as an animal to be tamed. Our worth is, sadly still very much attached to it since women have been socialized since childhood via millions of micro-experiences to believe their looks are of paramount importance. A key difference between today and the past is that women, in some countries, are free to do with their bodies as they please, no longer as constricted by rigid social and religious norms dictated by patriarchy as we were even decades ago. Don't risk being burned at stake or thrown out in the streets for exposing our ankles or showing our breasts. Of the choice now. So, some women choose to dress modestly. Choose to walk around half-naked. Choose to stay in between the two. Choose to use their bodies to gain money, fame, or climb the social ladder. Apparently, that last choice makes some people, ahem, mostly men, mad. Let me get this straight. Centuries the female body was either considered dangerous and heavily demonized, or its parts were over-sexualized for a man's viewing pleasure to the point of women being forced to cover themselves up or expose and accentuate specific parts while having no bodily autonomy whatsoever. Second women use their bodies to their advantage, all hell breaks loose. Or angry that Emily Ratajkowski or other models actresses, and celebrities use their bodies to get ahead in life, your anger is entirely misplaced. Don't be angry that our society persuades women to self-objectify by evaluating and controlling themselves in terms of their sexual appeal to others rather than their own health, happiness, and desires. Don't be angry that women are constantly being dehumanized and compared to objects to be groped, harassed, catcalled, and evaluated. Don't be angry that women are reduced to individual pieces, legs, breasts and butts, sir to a la carte items on a restaurant menu. Don't be angry at how utterly fucked up this world is if you happen to be a woman, not at women who work the rigged system to their benefit. Even when women wear revealing clothing, or nothing at all, and pose in sexually explicit ways, that does not give anyone the right to treat them as sex objects and assault them shouldn't even be up for discussion. Dualization and objectification are two different things.
Many reasons why a woman could be wearing an outfit, regardless of how revealing it is, that have nothing to do with sexual attention. It's shocking to you, congrats, you've just discovered context. She's wearing a low-cut top because she has spent several years being told to cover herself up, often placing the blame of other people's desires on her, and now she can express her autonomy through her outfit. She is wearing shorts because she finally has the confidence to show off her legs without feeling ashamed of her own body. She is just into the latest fashion trends. She didn't even notice that skirt was that short or that top too revealing. She's just busy being a human living her life. Think someone has dressed for sexual attention, and you might be right sometimes, other times not. Keep in mind that sexualization is a matter of perspective. Takes place in the eye and mind of the observer. Ill. Perceiving someone as sexually appealing is not the same as treating them like a sexual object. Sexually appealing people have thoughts and feelings and rights and agency. Acts do not. Don't be confusing the two, but too often, we are. Because practically every day, we're bombarded with images and messages we've learned to view as sexual and suggestive, and we've been conditioned to objectify women even in the most non-sexual of contexts. Think about it. Get sexualized and objectified for being petite. Being big boobs. Being big butts. Being big lips. Being tiny feet. Being skinny. Being curves. Being a certain profession, like a teacher, nurse, or lawyer. Being of a certain race or ethnicity. Being a virgin. Other. For breastfeeding our kids. Or, men get sexualized, too. Deny that. Are not sexualized and objectified by mass media to the extent that women are. Psychological study found that even when people are presented with pictures of men and women in sexualized poses, wear a swimsuit or underwear, they tend to objectify women, not men. Words, women tend to be perceived as objects, and men, as humans, are more than just bodies. One's definition of appropriate is different. Ones. Go back and forth all day about how we personally feel women should represent themselves. Failing to meet your standards doesn't make it acceptable for you to treat them inappropriately. Deserve respect and to be treated with dignity regardless of what they wear and how they portray themselves. That also includes women who voluntarily sign up to be portrayed as objects and accept huge paychecks in return. I wouldn't go as far as to claim that's the ultimate empowering act since women who choose that path are usually at the mercy of others, usually men's, preferences, appetites, and money. More of a faux power than actual power, really. Still we're living in a truly egalitarian society where women are taken seriously regardless of our looks, we shouldn't judge women for milking this messed up system for all it's worth. Bodies their lives, and their business. Instead of focusing on a few individuals, how about we focus on social norms that perpetuate this relentless sexualization and objectification of women's bodies and acknowledge that many industries blatantly profit off it.
girls and women suffer in very literal ways when sexualized female bodies inundate our media landscape. It's not something that is going to go away on its own. Not impossible to cut objectifying media out of our visual diets and retrain our minds to see each other as more than our physical appearance. Women are more than just bodies. More than their bodies, too. All thinking, feeling humans who can view ourselves and each other as such, even if those humans are showing more skin than what we deem as inappropriate. We can see more than just bodies in ourselves and others, we have the opportunity to be more. But why we're here, anyway. Old's customers disgusted as maggots fall from ceiling into women's meal. At a McDonald's in East London were left horrified as maggots fell from the ceiling and into their food. In a film the wriggling larvae on a table and all over the floor at the chains Beckton outlet on Thursday morning, the 18th of November. Zooms in on the maggots on the tables, he says, yeah, they're alive. In the restaurant says she saw two of the maggots had fall from the roof, while the man adds that they dropped on the ladies' food. I'm going to get a refund on this. McDonald's in Beckton, with maggots lying around. Over the floor. Olds has apologized and said the store was immediately closed. McDonald's was closed again yesterday, Friday, the 19th of November, for further cleaning. Olds spokesperson said, unfortunately, an incident occurred on Thursday morning at our restaurant in Beckton and we would like to apologize to any customers who were impacted. Front was immediately closed, and a thorough investigation found the root cause which has now been resolved. Front was closed throughout the day for the investigation and we brought in external specialists to carry out a deep clean. And closed on Friday as a precaution and for further cleaning. Worked closely with our pest prevention company and environmental health officers during this process. People on Twitter saw the funny side, referring to them as McMaggots and adding that they are probably a good source of protein. Weren't so amused, with one person saying, Newham is maggot capital so I'm not surprised. Added, enough evidence that McDonald's should just be cancelled, take KFC with you. A £150 bottomless brunch in London and I'm never doing a cheap one again. It's my northern spirit but for me, bottomless brunches come with a task, how much can I physically drink to get the best value for money? Opinion, a good afternoon at a bar filled with non-stop glasses of Prosecco for two hours with my best friends is the best way to drink in the capital. I saw that the bottomless brunch at Sumas and Twigger costs a whopping £150, I was skeptical. Brown brunch is twice as long as I'm used to at 4 hours and certainly far more expensive. Clearly the prospect of this expensive brunch became a challenge, would it be worth the cost? Boring and overly fancy. Vive. Questions in mind. I invited my best friend from Liverpool down to London for a weekend and dug out my best dress from the untouched back corner of my wardrobe. The car and I tottered down the street in my heels at half eleven in the morning. To brunch. Off to a great start when the driver dropped us off outside of Sloane Square and my shoe decided to break, 
reminding me that this was not my usual kind of Saturday. Dual kind of Saturday bottomless brunch would have me in trainers and jeans with a gaggle of other 23-year-olds drinking cheap glasses of Prosecco from plastic flutes. Open mind, and sporting a makeshift fixed shoe, we joined a queue of tanned, posher-talking, designer-dressed groups of ladies and suited and booted blokes. And I couldn't help but feel considerably younger with our slight Scouse accents flagging us as outsiders to this section of society. That mattered. To dance and dine and get considerably drunk. Be united with these people who can afford to splash 150 quid on a bit of fun by the spirit of bottomless brunch. I eat at our white-clothed table in the swanky room and was quickly offered a glass of champagne. Girlies. This bottleless brunch comes with champagne, not your typical Prosecco. Uttering disco balls, the space was quickly filled with the clinking of glasses and calmed chatter. Increasingly worried this was going to have a low-key feel. People capable of being rowdy and dancey. The voice boomed throughout the speakers. With me people, Uptown Brunch, chanted an MC in time to Bruno Mars' Uptown Funk originality. But to take the guy seriously when the bright light of outside was shining throughout the room and we were all still on our first drinks. Assure you, that level of audience participation soon increased. Antive and friendly waiters swiftly brought out spreads of starters. On an incredible plate of gnocchi, piles of flavored edamame beans, scrumptious sushi and stunning burrata. It tasted incredible. All of mixed salad leaves was beautiful. Real food, it actually tasted expensive. It's my northern spirit but for me, bottomless brunches come with a task, how much can I physically drink to get the best value for money? Inion, a good afternoon at a bar filled with non-stop glasses of Prosecco for two hours with my best friends is the best way to drink in the capital. Saw that the bottomless brunch at Sumas and Twigger costs a whopping £150, I was skeptical. On brunch is twice as long as I'm used to at 4 hours and certainly far more expensive. The prospect of this expensive brunch became a challenge, would it be worth the cost? Boring and overly fancy. Vive. Questions in mind. I invited my best friend from Liverpool down to London for a weekend and dug out my best dress from the untouched back corner of my wardrobe. Car and I tottered down the street in my heels at half eleven in the morning. To brunch. Off to a great start when the driver dropped us off outside of Sloane Square and my shoe decided to break, reminding me that this was not my usual kind of Saturday. Mole kind of Saturday bottomless brunch would have me in trainers and jeans with a gaggle of other 23-year-olds drinking cheap glasses of Prosecco from plastic flutes. Open mind, and sporting a makeshift fixed shoe, we joined a queue of tanned, posher-talking, designer-dressed groups of ladies and suited and booted blokes. And I couldn't help but feel considerably younger with our slight Scouse accents flagging us as outsiders to this section of society. That mattered. To dance and dine and get considerably drunk. 
shouldn't be united with these people who can afford to splash 150 quid on a bit of fun by the spirit of bottomless brunch. I ate at our white-clothed table in the swanky room and was quickly offered a glass of champagne. Girlies, this bottomless brunch comes with champagne, not your typical Prosecco. Uring disco balls, the space was quickly filled with the clinking of glasses and calmed chatter. I'm increasingly worried this was going to have a low-key feel. People capable of being rowdy and dancey. S voice boomed throughout the speakers. S me people, Uptown Brunch, chanted an MC in time to Bruno Mars' Uptown Funk. Originality. It to take the guy seriously when the bright light of outside was shining throughout the room and we were all still on our first drinks. Sure you. That level of audience participation soon increased. Outive and friendly waiters swiftly brought out spreads of starters. Don an incredible plate of gnocchi, piles of flavored edamame beans, scrumptious sushi, and stunning burrata. It tasted incredible. Eel of mixed salad leaves was beautiful. Ill food, it actually tasted expensive. Were quickly flowing too with servers doing constant laps of the room with champagne. I myself a cocktail to mix things up too and was impressed by the refreshing taste of a light Tommy's Rosolio, it was like a sharp margarita that was equally sweet. And, I was soon on my feet too stepping along to the disco tunes and live saxophonist who toured the space. Sout a guy with a sax and a room of tipsy people is just so fun was quickly saved from the embarrassment of my dancing when the mains arrived. I for a bottega tortellini but was soon overwhelmed by plate envy when I saw my friend's dish. Don a beautifully char-grilled ribeye steak that was buttery and pink and tender and almost too attractive to eat. Was still tasty, just not as incredible as that hunk of meat. I filled up on more food and a busload of drinks. They turned uptown brunch up a notch. Packed the music up and the staff finally closed the curtains, shutting down the societal barriers with them. Amped to their feet, two stepping together and enjoying the live singer's stunning voice. Irie. To Diana Ross and joined by my best friend with a glass in hand. It been any time of night, we didn't care where we were. Boon brought, temporarily. Crashing back down when I realized the bubbles, those sweet delicious bubbles, had stopped. Ours, the delectable glasses of champagne disappeared and we were left with just cocktails, wine and beer. And, a new competition began. Struggling to keep up with the now constant order of drinks from everyone in the room, we all realized those tequila cocktails were basically the nectar of the gods. This being so friendly. We cleverly struck a deal of asking for some wine while we waited for our next round of cocktails. And just say, forward slash shamelessly expose myself, I might not be a sommelier, but I can say it was good wine. Mean it wasn't the kind of stuff you can get for under a fiver at Tesco. It was better than the fancier ones they sometimes make £6.50 on club card. Aries at bay. I finally felt like I slipped into the rhythm of the party. No more surprises, until the sparklers arrived.
suddenly glowed with the lights of dozens of mini fireworks. Bob's sight to see what those sparklers were actually attached to. Nor kind of thing at an event is bottle of booze with a sparkler stuck in the top. Town, high-end, branch we had the odd sight of rows of waiters carrying giant fruit bowls with sparklers in them. Filled to the brim with a rainbow of fresh fruits that actually made my mouth water. After all the food, the sight of fruit still had me drooling. Tasted like it had been just picked fresh and flown in specially for us. Itable. Burst with juice, the grapes were little crisp jewels and the mango was a golden block of goodness. I thought I'd find myself in a place in Chelsea drinking fancy cocktails, singing along to Whitney Houston and exclaiming over the freshness of fruit. Silly, I wasn't even stumbling out of the place afterwards. She consumed an enormous, and probably unhealthy, amount of alcohol. Bo danced until my feet were sore and ate until my belly nearly broke my dress too. In plodding, I was walking out with a bounce in my step, without a second thought for my poor little broken shoe. Bunch is a magical experience, and this one was just bursting with extravagance and opulence. Adam Twigger's branch, you're really getting what you pay for. And you have to use a competitive mindset of overdoing it to get your money's worth babe. Eh, you're in the posher end of the capital, paying £150 for four hours of drinks, three courses of incredible food and some fabulous live entertainment. Reasonable when you add it up. Lie, it's still a lot of money to me and not something I would splash out on just a bit of Saturday fun. May very big occasion, a one-off event that you'd be spending a lot on anyway then that way this is a steal. I'm to confirm that it was worth the cost, that being fancy doesn't exist in the world of bottomless brunch, and my little northern self did in fact survive, and actually enjoyed myself doing so. We have enjoyed our podcast for today and we thank you for your support. We hope to see you again next time.